Jesus said, quoting from Deuteronomy, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and the spiritual life through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which has been given to us exceedingly great and magnificent promises that we, through these we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Before we open God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Uh, Father, we are so thankful for your grace, your goodness to us. We know that you protect us. We know that our lives are in your hands and that you determine the time, the manner, the place of our death. And yet, Father, when we hear of a saint who has run the race well and has served you, there is still sorrow in our hearts because it's a reminder to us that life is not what it ought to be. This is not how you originally created things, but you created us to be sinless and to stay walking with you. But because of Adam's sin, corruption has come into this world and things are not what they ought to be. And one of the reminders to us that things are not the way they should be is when death occurs. And, Father, we rejoice that he, that David has gone to be with you. And, Father, we also pray for his family, uh, for the grief, the sorrow, the loss that they will experience, the change in their life. Just as our Lord wept at the grave of Lazarus, not because Lazarus had died, but because he looked on the crowd and saw their grief. And in his compassion for the human race, he knew that that, that was not what he had intended and that all this pain and sorrow was the result of sin. And that was what he was going to deal with very shortly. Father, we thank you for the study we've had in Ephesians 3, learning about the remarkable new entity of the church. Help us to understand its significance, our role within the body of Christ, and the way we are to be a witness to the angels as well as to all humanity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to do a little review today because it's been a couple of months since we were last here. In fact, in the previous lesson, which was uh, lesson 91, the title was Our Testimony to the Angels and this was really the beginning of this sub-series we did on the angelic rebellion. And so we're looking at this as a second part to that because we took uh, the opportunity to investigate what the Bible teaches about the angelic revolt uh, through the last couple of months as a sub-series because it turns out that uh, at the same time we were hitting this important verse, we were coming to a verse related to the angelic uh, revolt in Second Peter chapter two verses four and five, and also on uh, on uh, Tuesday night we had been going through some psalms, and a key element 
was to study the some of the psalms related to this angelic revolt. So we've done that now. So that helps us to understand help to help us understand what is going on in these verses. And so we just need to review it a little bit, get the flow of thought back into our minds. And so I think that what I am going to do is read through the last part of this section. Actually, I think we need to read through the whole thing. So let me just read through it with a couple of comments, and, and then we'll, we'll focus on some of the review. Paul begins this by saying, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. He's a prisoner in Rome, and he is writing to them from prison in Rome. And one reason he is writing this, because they're upset that his, he's in prison, and their view is that maybe God isn't, uh, God's plan isn't being accomplished because Paul has been sidelined. So he takes this opportunity to go uh, to a, uh, a segue into a diversion that really isn't a diversion but lays the foundation for his ministry. And he says in verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was, uh, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. That's New Testament apostles and prophets, church age apostles and prophets, not Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me in the effective by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the uh, not fellowship, if you're looking at a new King James or King James, but what is the dispensation or the administration of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus to the intent that now, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart in my tribulations for you, which is your glory." So we look at this section, verses 7 through 10, and to understand this, we really have to contextualize it a minute, so I want to do a little more in terms of the review. As I just stated, in verse 1, Paul starts off by saying, for this reason, that's a key phrase. Look down at verse 14. What does it say? It says, for this reason. Okay, so when we look at that, we know that something interrupts what he's saying in verse 1. 
He's saying, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. He's emphasizing the fact that he's in prison. He's going to return to this thought in verse in, um, in verse 14 when he says, uh, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to pick up where he left off. But he's concerned about them because in verse uh, 13 he states, after this this diversion from from 2 to 12, he says, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. The therefore is a conclusion drawn from what he says in verse 2 to verse 11. And he says, Therefore don't lose heart. Why would they lose heart? They would lose heart because as far as they were concerned, it looked like Paul had been sidelined by the Roman uh, government uh, and that he sh- was being prevented from carrying out his ministry when what was actually going on was this is exactly what God intended, that he was going to use Paul's imprisonment. Remember, he was arrested in Jerusalem. He's taken to Caesarea by the sea. You have two different governors there that that uh, will interview him, and they don't want to make a decision on the case one way or the other. So finally, Paul appeals to the emperor so that he can go to Rome and have his case adjudicated. So he's there in in prison in Caesarea by the sea in, in Israel for two years. Then you have forever how long it take, took for the ship uh, ship. Uh, to travel to Rome, and then there's the shipwreck, and then he's in prison two years in Rome. So it's close to five years. But during that time, there are all kinds of people who are coming to see Paul, and he's teaching, he's training uh, leaders, he's training pastors, and using that time to to carry out his his particular ministry. So what he is telling them is don't lose heart. God's plan hasn't been sidelined. Whatever you think is going on in the world today as we face the fact that um, that there's a pandemic, that we face the fact that there is uh, political turmoil, we face the fact that many people have lost jobs, some people have had the virus and they've lost health, they've had long-term consequences, others have not. There's all kinds of things that are going on there, hindrances to missionary work uh, that are taking place, all kinds of things. Yet God is still in control. And God is going to accomplish his purposes, and God accomplishes those purposes through whatever uh, speed bumps or potholes or roadblocks we think are being erected by the world. God is able to use that, as Romans 8.28 says, to work all things together uh, for good. And so in the last eight or nine months since this, or almost 10 months now since this pandemic really hit us here in the U.S., there have been a lot of people who've had to adjust to a lot of things, including myself. I may not be able to leave on Wednesday to go to Kiev. But this is part of what is going on in the devil's world right now. So you can continue to pray for that, that that will work itself out. But I have no idea whether it will or will not. And so what Paul is saying is that his, he has a particular mission, and that's being accomplished. And the way we get that is by looking at uh, back at verse 2. Let me see if I have a slide on that. I don't think I do. I didn't bring that over. We go back and we look at verse 2. He says, if indeed you have heard of the, and then I made a big point of this over the months, 
the dispensation, literally the administration of the grace of God which was given to me for you. Okay, it's not the administration or the dispensation of grace. It, it, You've got to look at the whole phrase. And if we read through here, what we find out is that Paul uses that whole phrase or almost all of it several times. If you look at verse 7, he says, talking about, we are partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel in verse 6, of which, that is, of the gospel, I became a minister according to what? The gift of the grace of God given to me and the effective working of his power. We have that most of that phrase. And then he says in verse 8, to me who am less than the least of the saints, this grace was given to me that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So this phrase, the grace of God which was given to me for you, is the mission of Paul as an apostle. When he was saved on the road to Damascus, he's commissioned as an apostle, and Christ gives him a mission as an apostle, which was primarily but not exclusively, that's an important phrase, which was primarily to be the apostle to the Gentiles but not to the exclusion of taking the gospel to the Jews. It's not an either-or, it's a both-and, but his primary focus was to take the gospel uh, to, the, uh, to the Gentiles. Well, Peter was the apostle to the Jews, but Peter also ministered to Gentiles. He was the first one to take the gospel to Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and 11 when he took the gospel to Cornelius. So, so there have been older dispensationalists who made an issue out of that as if his commission as the apostle to the Gentiles uh, excluded going to the Jews. And, and that's just a, a total mis, misrepresentation of his ministry. He always went to the Jew first and then to the Greek, and there was never any indication in Scripture that there was something wrong with that. That's how he established all these different churches on his different missionary journeys. So that's his, that's his mission, as his commissioning as an apostle, and his mission was to take the gospel to the Gentile, that there was something distinctive about this. And that's what's described in all throughout this section as the mystery. A mystery is not something that is sort of a riddle you try to uncover, like a murder mystery or something like that. A mystery in the language and use at the time was a previously unrevealed truth. That's very important to understand because he's talking about something that God did not disclose to anyone. He didn't tell any angels about it. He didn't tell any prophets in the Old Testament about it. There's not even a hint of this in the Old Testament that something's going to change in the future. In the Old Testament, there is a stark division between Jew and Gentile. God has called out the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be his unique and distinct people, and he's going to work through them. And that Gentiles, if they're going to be able to even come to God in the temple, they're going to have to completely convert to to biblical Judaism, okay? Not the intertestamental Judaism or rabbinical Judaism, but biblical Judaism, which was based on the Old Testament law and the gospel of grace in the Old Testament. And so uh, in, in that circumstance, there's no... 
there's no nothing for Gentiles. They are distinct. They can't come into the uh, they can't come past the Soric wall in the in the outer courtyard of the temple. They are excluded from the covenants. They are excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They're strangers from the covenants of promise. And as Paul said back in verse 12 of chapter 2, they have no hope in without, uh, without God in the world. But then something changed. Christ came and he died that he could take the two and make them one. One new man, one new body, one new temple. That's what 2.11 down through 22 was all about. That this is the mystery. This is what was never revealed. Satan had no clue this was going to happen. And as we looked through our study in angels, I pointed this out. Satan's not omniscient. All he knew, knows about God's plans are what's revealed in the word. And God didn't reveal anything about that. He didn't, although the resurrection is hinted at and it is focused on in some passages, it is made somewhat cryptically to obscure it from Satan. So when he thinks that he has defeated Christ by having him killed at the cross and he can't bring in the kingdom, Jesus is raised from the dead and Satan is defeated at the cross. And the next thing that happens is that God creates a new organism, a new entity, and that's the church the church that is now composed equally of Jew and Gentile, where there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And back in 2.14, we're told he himself is our peace. By our, Paul is talking to Gentiles. He's our peace, Jew and Gentile. He's our peace. He made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, which was the law that separated Jew from Gentile, and now they are come together, verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So this is the, a critical element in what Paul is going to be, uh, what Paul is going to be preaching. So he says in verse 7, of which, I became a minister, that is, of the gospel, I became a minister, that's his commission as the apostle, according to the gift of the grace of God, given to me by the effective working of his power. And then he says, starting this second paragraph in this section, he says, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, he's not being, it's not false humility here. He is so, he knows that under under religious conditions, he's got nothing to qualify him to be saved. And all the things he counted on when he was a Pharisee, it all meant nothing. He calls it scubala. It is manure. It is nothing. It is worthless. And and so he says that there's nothing. He, he, he murdered. He conspired to murder uh, Christians. And he knows that there's nothing that gives him any any value before God. So he is the least of all the saints. But what is given to him is the first thing that's mentioned here to preach the good news to the Gentiles, the unsearchable wealth of Christ. Now, that word to preach is important. It's the Greek word evangelizo, and it means to give the gospel, the good news, Angelos, the word for angel, is from the verb angelizo, which the word angel means a messenger, and angelizo means to proclaim a message. 
And the EU at the beginning means something good. So it means to proclaim the good news. Now, in English, we have this word preach. And you go to seminary and you learn that preaching fits a certain rhetorical style. Often it's three points in a poem. And you can turn on the TV and watch all kinds of people do what they call preaching. That's not what the Bible calls preaching. I think uh, C.H. Dodd was uh, a theologian in the 20th century, but I think he was absolutely correct. In fact, Wayne House re- referenced this, I think it was Wayne, last week. Um, but that that in the Old Testament, the concept of preach, I mean, in, in the New Testament concept of preaching, often it's translated preach, translates the word keruso, which means to announce something. And that, but a lot of times, the translators of the King James translated evangelizo as preaching, and it doesn't mean that. It means to give the good news. It's to evangelize. That's where we get the word. Keruso is the word for proclaiming the gospel. But there's another important word that you find that runs all through the pastorals in First and Second Timothy, and that is the word didasco, which means to teach, to teach, to teach, to instruct. That's what a pastor is supposed to do, not preach according to the rhetorical style of modern churches. That doesn't educate, inform, or instruct people on the Christian life, and they are to also proclaim the gospel. So this is what Paul is saying. His first mission had to do with proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, the unsearchable wealth of Christ. So this isn't limited to telling the Gentiles how to have eternal life, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved but to let them know that not only do you get eternal life and your destiny is heaven, but look at all of the wealth of Christ that is now yours in him. So that's teaching everything about the spiritual life. And so Paul's mission is not just to give them the gospel, but to give what I call the truthful gospel, which is everything related to the spiritual life, everything related to what we now have in Christ once we are saved. So this is what he refers to back in Ephesians 2.17, that he came and preached, um, and this is Christ coming and proclaiming during the first advent, preached or proclaimed the good news. The same word was used there. Jesus was giving the good news in his, in his first advent of peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and those who were near the Jews. Jesus had ministry to the Gentiles under the law. It wasn't the same. He wasn't doing this during his ministry what Paul is doing in his because there's something new that happened from the day of Pentecost. So this is the two, the, the two uh, focal points of his ministry. Number one, to evangelize the Gentiles and give them all the information about the incredible wealth that we have in Christ. And second, verse 9 says to reveal to all what is the dispensation, literally the administration of the mystery. So that's his second thing, to tell, to tell them that they're equal with Jews, Jews in the body of Christ, and they are in one new, new body, they're one new man, and there's, there's one new te- temple, and what the significance of that is. So that's, that's his twofold purpose here. Now, what's important in verse 9 is that he is saying to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this is that when we get into verse 10 and we start talking about 
the intent that God has that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. I guess some people have said that's his primary mission, primary purpose or God's primary purpose was to make this proclamation before the angels or make this testimony before the angels. And it's not saying that's it exclusively. It is saying that this is one of the, uh, of the ways God is multitasking through the church. God is the master and the originator of multitasking. He can usually do more than three things at the same time. And so that's what he says, to make all see. Who are the all? Now, what's interesting is there are two of the ancient Egyptian 3rd century, 4th century manuscripts that, that survived in the desert of Sinai uh, that don't have all. But nearly every other manuscript, two or three other manuscripts found down in the Sinai have all, and the majority text has all. So th- that, that is what should be in the text, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery or what is the, uh, what is the administration of the ministry, of the mystery. So to make all see. Who's the all? The all is humans and angels, Okay to make all see. So it, we're not just talking about a singular purpose here, but to make all that is uh, humans and angels see. In other words, to enlighten them, which is how I've translated that verb, to enlighten all to what is the fellowship, or this should be translated the administration or strategy of the mystery. I like that word strategy. I didn't emphasize that when I taught this two months ago. But it, th- there is a strategy to God's plan to include Jew and Gentile together in one body. What is that strategy? I think it's, it's hinted at well here that that strategy has something to do with this testimony to humans and especially to angels. There's a strategy in in why God now institutes this new entity of the church because he's demonstrating some things to the angels. And that relates to the resolution of the angelic revolt, that God is demonstrating the wealth of his grace, undeserved merit, which is critical in the condemnation of Satan and the fallen angels. So what he is doing, what what Paul is saying in verse 9, is that his ministry is to enlighten all, I left that out in, in this text by mistake in this translation, but enlighten all, which would be humanity and angels, on what is the administration of the mystery that is putting into effect this new revelation of Jew and Gentile together in one new body. See, we don't grasp that. 2,000 years later, when we're Gentiles, we don't grasp what a bombshell this was, especially to Jews in the first century. This was something that that was never anticipated, and, and the new Gentile believers are realizing that they have greater privileges now in the body of Christ than an Old Testament believer had. And so this, Paul says about this mystery, that from the beginning of the ages it was hidden in God. Nobody knew about it. Satan didn't know about it. Demons didn't know about it. 
Angels didn't know about it. No prophets in the Old Testament knew about it. It was hidden in God who created all things in Christ Jesus. Now we come to verse 10. To the intent, so this is defining God's purpose, that now in contrast to then, to the former way before the mystery, that now the manifold wisdom of God. So what God is doing is with you and with me in this new entity at the church, we become an example to the angels and to man. We become a, as it were, we are part of the evidence put on display in a cosmic trial. God is saying, look at to the angels in this angelic revolt, look at the manifestation of my grace now with the with the church. This is the evidence that is being put on display. And it's displaying the multifaceted wisdom of God. The word that is used here that's translated manifold is uh, polypoikilos, which means something that is has many different colors, many different dimensions. It's uh, uh, varied. It is complex. It ha- it's multifaceted, and it is putting on display how rich and full uh, the wisdom of God actually is. And what about the wisdom of God? Well, it is to make something known. Now, I want to address, take your attention back to what we've read so far. If you go back to three three, notice it says that it's part of the grace that was given to Paul for, for the Gentiles. He says how that by revelation, revelation is making something known. Okay, so again, it's making something known. This is emphasized all the way through the chapter, how that by revelation God made something known. Uh, he made the mystery known. Something that was not revealed has been revealed. And then verse 4, he says, that you may understand my knowledge in this mystery of Christ. In verse 5, he says, this information was not made known to the sons of men, in other ages, as it's now been revealed. And then you, you, we skip down to verse uh, verse 9 and 10, and again, it's reminding us that, that the whole issue here is making information known that was never known before. This is a remarkable shift in the plan of God. So the, the manifold wisdom of God is being put on display in the church, so that it may be known by the church. It is by us as a corporate entity of the body of Christ, as well as individual local churches, that God is teaching something to the angels as well as to humanity. Now, just because you teach something doesn't mean people learn anything. When I was in college, I was an education minor. You have to be in Texas in order to get your teaching certificate. And I would hear professors say, if they haven't learned, you haven't taught. And then I heard seminary professors say that, and I said, well, what about individual volition? Just because you're the best teacher in the world like Jesus Christ and people reject what you say doesn't mean he didn't teach. You can teach till you're blue in the face, and if people don't want to learn, they're not going to learn. 
And so just because people and the angels don't get it doesn't mean it hasn't been made clear. It has been made clear, and that is the evidence that comes up in this trial of Satan and the fallen angels in their rebellion against God. So it is to be made known. It is, uh, this relates back to that concept of being enlightened, to make all see or to enlighten all regarding the administration of the mystery. And it is related to both angels and humans that it might, the wisdom of God might be made known by the church. To whom? This is where we paused last time by the princip- to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now, who are these principalities and powers? The two words that I have uh, put up on the screen, the first word is the word arche. Now, this word can refer to something that is primary, something that is of first importance. If you read Greek in uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the arche, in the beginning. It has also to do with that which is first or that which has uh, authority or it's uh, translated as a uh, principality. Uh, it is a first. It refers to someone in authority. The other word is the word exousia, which has the idea of uh, of authority. So you have a principality or ruler. He's first. Okay. So the in also means in the beginning and first. So the first person, the first ruler. That whole idea comes together. Now it's. Interesting how this is translated. Who are these principalities and powers? Now, we are to manifest them. Let's just look at this phrase. The combination phrase is arche and exousia. Translated usually in Ephesians and in Colossians as principalities and powers, but unfortunately, other people translated Romans and 1 Corinthians and you have other terms used, and it gets inconsistent. But in Ephesians and Colossians, it is consistent. You read principalities and powers, it's arche and exousia. Now, exousia has to do with authority. So it should have been translated principalities and authorities because there's a third word that we're going to see, which is in Romans 8.38, that is translated powers there, but it's not exousia, it's dunamis just to confuse you. That's why it's important to get back back into Greek. It should have been translated principalities and authorities and powers. Dunamis has to do with might and ability to do things. In Romans 8.38 is a verse most of us know by heart, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers. That has to do with hierarchy. But here it's a different word, and it has to do with those who have have power, those who have uh, abil- certain abilities. First Corinthians fifteen twenty four uh, talks about the fact that when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when He puts all an end to all rule, it's arche and all authority, it's exousia. See, they're not consistent. Instead of saying all rule um, and powers, which is how it's translated in Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, it, this is the way it should be translated all the way through. It's rule and authorities, but rulers and authorities. But 
they're, they're not consistent, which is always my little bugaboo. Uh, but here it's all, you have three classifications, rule, authority, power. And that is describing the hierarchy, hierarchy of angels. It's made clear in Ephesians 121, where, of course, it's consistently translated all the way through Ephesians and Colossians, where Paul says, far above all principality, that's arche, and power, exousia, and might, that's dunamis, and dominion, that's curiotes, which has to do with the, the, the a Lord. Curios is Lord, so it's the ruling power or dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And then at the end of Ephesians, when we talk about spiritual warfare, Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Again, we have those two words, arche and exousia against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Now, this begins to help us define this, that this phrase refers to rankings of authority or position among the uh, demonic or even the, the uh, holy angel hierarchy. Colossians, uh, written at the same time by Paul, very similar to Ephesians, in Colossians 1.16, Paul says, For by him all things were created that, in, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And in Colossians 1.18, He, Christ, is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. And then in Colossians 2.10, And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And then Colossians 2.15, which we'll have to look at next week, having disarmed principalities and powers. How did he disarm them? That's next lesson. Now, if we go back to Daniel, now we've looked at this when we looked at our study of the angels, that there are rankings of evil angels. And we see hints of this in Daniel 10 and Daniel 12. Daniel 10 talks, starts off then, he said to me, me is Daniel, the he is Gabriel who is revealing this to Daniel, probably Gabriel, although it's not specifically identified in the text. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me, 21 days. Now, who's the prince of the kingdom of Persia? It's not the human king because that's identified by the phrase the kings, Melech in Hebrew, the kings of Persia at the end of verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia is somebody who fights with an angel. So this is not a human being. This is an, a, a, a fallen angel. This is a demon who is influencing the kingdom of Persia and is fighting with Gabriel. And so Gabriel says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Michael is an archangel identified as such in Jude. Now, what's interesting here is that the word in Hebrew for prince is the word sar and can refer to a ruler. It's translated into the Greek of the Septuagint with the same word arche, that is what we're talking about is principalities over in Ephesians and Colossians and principalities and power. So what we're learning is that this concept of arcade refers to someone who is a, a higher authority within the angelic breakdown. 
it refers to Michael, and it refers to other other uh, upper echelon angels. Michael is one of the chief princes, but prince is different from kings of Persia. Daniel 10, 20, uh, Gabriel says, Do you know why I've come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia, the demon, And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece, the demon who's associated with influencing the the politics and the leadership of Greece, he will come. And then in verse 21, but I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Why does he call him Daniel's prince? Because in 12.1, we're told that Michael is the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, over Israel. That's one of Michael's primary responsibilities is to watch over and guard and protect uh, the Jewish people. So when we look at our verse in verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, this is to holy angels as well as fallen angels. These terms are used to describe both. So God is demonstrating through us corporately and through us individually his manifold wisdom to the fallen angels and to the holy angels. So our lives are to, are a testimony and are on review before all of the angels so that they see, they see what sinners we are how unworthy we are. Now, that isn't to make you feel guilty. That's to make you feel blessed out because God and his grace has saved us, and that's what God's teaching through us. The grace of God in saving us is not something the angels could personally experience. And so through us, God is teaching them things that they would never understand at all. And so just a couple of things about this, and then we'll wrap up. First of all, this is part of God's plan to use the church as a visible demonstration to teach some things to the angels about his wisdom that could not have been learned any other way. In 1 Corinthians 4, 9, now I would just quote the first verse, but there's something about these verses that we ought to pay attention to. We don't live in a nice world. We have it for a long time, but a lot of people are just waking up to the fact that we live in the devil's world and our future may not be all that we once thought it would be. This is what Paul says about his life as an apostle. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last. Now, the display is to the angels. That's the point I'm making from this passage, but the context is important. He has displayed us, the apostles. If it's true for the apostles, it's true for us. As men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, he's being sarcastic here to the Corinthians because they think they had all the answers. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Then he says, to the present hour, we apostles, the great apostle Paul and Peter, how are they described? We both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten 
and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world. The word that is used for filth is that when you are, for example, cleaning the ring around the tub and you scrape it up and throw it away, that's the filth. What this, in our idiom, this should be translated. We are, in the eyes of the world, the scum of the earth. That's how Paul describes his apostolic ministry. The world it looks at us, it persecutes us, it rejects us, it reviles us. For them, to them, we are the scum of the earth, the offscouring of all things until now. So we go through this to be a testimony to the angels, a spectacle to the angels. We're, second, we're told that angels observe church leaders in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21 says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. He charges Timothy before God and the angels because he is a witness before the angels as we all are. The holy or the elect angels watch how church leaders perform their responsibilities, and therefore we are to conduct ourselves with integrity because we are being watched by the angels. We are to witness to them in terms of our integrity. Third, angels long to look into what God's grace is accomplishing in the church age. They never experienced anything comparable to the grace, the kind of grace that we experience. First Peter 1.12 says, To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So to them refers to the Old Testament prophets. And, and he says, This has now been reported to you that those who have evangelized you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These are things that angels desire to look into. It's a very picturesque word that's translated desire. Angels are bending over with a magnifying glass to examine you because they are learning so much about God that they didn't learn any other way. We are on display to teach eternal lessons to the angels. And then we learn that the church, specifically in terms of the unity of Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ, is the evidence in Ephesians 3.10 that we display the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God, the multivaried, multi a dimensional wisdom of God. And we do that when we are obedient, we, they see it from a positive dimension, and when we are disobedient, they see the negative side of it. But all in all, what they learn about is the grace of God, that we don't earn or deserve his favor we simply trust in him, and he provides everything for us, like in salvation. Whether it's trusting in God to be saved eternally because of what Christ did and not for us, 
or whether it is trust God to trust God day by day in every dimension of our life, uh, both display the grace of God to the angels. And when we fail, God doesn't kick us out. He disciplines us, perhaps. We suffer the consequences of our failures, but God never falters in his love, in his care, and his provision for us. And that's what God is teaching the angels as well as all mankind uh, through what he is doing in the church today. We'll come back next time and look at some other aspects of this as we continue with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of your grace. For as Paul says, there's a grace given to him that has to do with his spiritual gift, his commission, his mission, and we have a grace given to us in terms of our spiritual gift and our commission and mission. And Father, by carrying that out, we glorify you, and it teaches the angels. It informs them, and they long to look into it as our lives are put in display as trophies of grace. Father, we pray that we might be challenged to live up to that reality. And Father, we pray that if there's anybody who's here, anybody who has not trusted in Christ as Savior and is unsure about eternity or eternal life, that they would recognize that the Scripture presents it very simply and very plainly, that we are born without life, alienated from the life of God, Christ died for our sins that we might have everlasting life by simply trusting in him. And that's the good news of the gospel, that we don't have to do anything. We don't have to change our lives, reform our lives, join the right group. Uh, None of those things. We simply trust in Christ, and then we're saved. He regenerates us. He imputes his righteousness to us. He declares us righteous, makes us new creatures in Christ that we may Uh, have the potential to experience all the wealth of the riches of Christ that we have. Father, help us to desire to want to know these things and to make them a reality in our lives. And we encourage those who've never trusted Christ to trust in him. And we pray that for all of us that we would not take this lightly and in these uncertain times we would realize the only certainty and stability we have is in you and in your word and that this may cause other things in our life that we have spent so much time focusing on to uh, begin to dim and fade away as we focus on our eternal destiny and what you have given us in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.